0: Uh, and this morning we are going to start a new series uh, in our Sunday morning gatherings as we look at God's word. Uh, and it's, it's a series that's going to take us through the letter, the first letter anyway to the Thessalonians that Paul writes in the New Testament. Um, and so this is a wonderful letter. Uh, there are two letters that Paul writes to this church um, and they are jam-packed full of punchy, uh, powerful teaching. Um, and, I, and I wonder whenever you hear all right, we're doing a series on First Thessalonians. I wonder what your immediate response is. Um, if you've been a Christian for a while, I wonder what your knowledge of First Thessalonians is or your experience in it. Maybe you've studied it in depth. Maybe you know it well. Um, my, my assumption is there's lots of us who haven't spent a lot of time in this letter. And as I've been spending more time in this letter, it's, it's really struck me. that That's a real shame. This is a great letter. As I said, it's short. You could easily read it in one sitting. Uh, But yet it is full of so much helpful, relevant, timely, powerful teaching for us as God's people. Uh, And so I would encourage you, uh, maybe sometime this week if you can, to read through the whole letter. Um, As I said, you could do that in one sitting, maybe take the five chapters and divide it up over the week. Um, But let's invest in our time in this brilliant, wonderful gift that God has given to us in this letter. And it is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica. Uh, And that means that we are not necessarily the immediate audience that first received this, yet because this is God's word, Paul wrote this letter under the inspiration of God the Spirit, and so we know that it is eternally good for God's people. It is is eternally profitable for us uh, and good for us to learn from, and so I'm excited about what God may teach us as as we engage with this letter over the next few weeks. If you do get a chance to read through the letter as a whole, uh, you'll start to see some themes which come to the, to the surface. Uh, we very quickly see Paul's love and affection for this church. And we see that through the language that he uses right from the very start. Uh, we hear the, of the great reputation this church has within the area and the region that it's in, which is in Macedonia, ancient Macedonia, modern day Greece. And so we hear of this wonderful reputation the church has. And then we see Paul's teaching, his instruction to this church on a wide variety of really relevant issues. Issues like work, sharing the gospel, persevering under persecution, knowing God's will, maturing as a Christian, relationships within the church. All of that and more are included in these five chapters. And as I'm sure you'll agree, these are still very live, relevant issues for us as we seek to... Uh, Follow God and obey his ways in our day-to-day lives now. And one of the other themes which keeps cropping up uh, time and time again across the pages of both letters is the second coming of Christ. In the first letter, each one of the five chapters references it in some way, whether by direct teaching or almost as Paul is passing through. He mentions the second coming of Christ, how the people are waiting for that day and how they should live in the light of that day coming. And so it's clear that because Paul mentions it so much, and indeed as we'll engage with the letter more, we see that this was a real issue for the church, which is why Paul then addressed it in his letter. We see that this is a key issue for this church in Thessalonica, but also for us, for all Christians. All Christians everywhere through all time, the second coming of Christ is a key teaching that we need to engage with. It's something we definitely should be aware of. Jesus is coming back. That, that, that's good news. Jesus is coming back. And yes, as we celebrated at Christmas, he gloriously yet humbly came From heaven to take on human flesh, to live in this world, to die a death on the cross, taking the penalty of sin upon himself. Yet not being able to be withheld or be held and bound by death, he rose victorious from the grave that they put him in. He then ascended into heaven. And as he was ascending, as his disciples watch him, which is recorded for us at the very start of Acts, the angels come to him there and say this, men of Galilee, this is Acts 1 verse 11, that men of Galilee, the angel said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. Jesus will come back. He was here. He has left. He will return. And Jesus himself, of course, had promised that to his disciples. In John 14, we hear him saying, Jesus said to his followers, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus is coming back. The first disciples completely and very rightly grasped that truth with real urgency. And so as the message of the gospel spread from Jerusalem throughout the ancient Near East, that message, the gospel included the truth that Jesus is coming back. And so you must respond to the wonderful message of salvation that he is bringing. And it is still a key part of the good news of Jesus Christ. He is coming back. And this is one of the reasons this is such vital news for us. Is because of the impact that that truth ought to have on the people who follow Jesus. See as as Christians live out our day to day lives. We do so. In the certainty of what is to come. We know that Jesus is returning again. That future is certain. He has promised it. It will come to be. And therefore the Bible shows us, and it's clear through First Thessalonians, that our lives now should be lived in light of what we know to be coming. That's why I'm going to call this series through this letter Double Vision. And I don't mean that negatively as if there's blurriness or we all need to go and get our eyes checked or there's uncertainty about the second coming. No, quite the opposite. What Thessalonians shows us is that we will benefit by having our vision on two simultaneous realities. Firstly, we do look forward. We look forward to the second coming of Christ. We eagerly and expectantly look there because those for those of us who are in Jesus, that day is a glorious day. And so that we look forward there, our king is coming back to usher in his kingdom in all its fullness. It is a glorious day for those who are in Christ. So we look there, but we shouldn't just keep our eyes there. You see, if we only focus on the future, then we lose what God has for us in the here and now. And that's not right either. Jesus is coming, yes and amen. Amen. But until that day, he's got stuff for us to do for him in the here and now while we are still here. And therefore, aware of and expectant for the future that we know is coming. We live and serve for him now until he comes or calls us home. And so we have double vision. We live life in the present with confidence in the future. It's about life in the present, very, really, truly rooted in the present with a confidence in what is to come in the future. And so our lives now are fueled by, they're encouraged by, they're they're keenly aware of the future coming of our King. And so we live with the present reality in front of us, confident knowing knowing what's coming. And indeed, as we get into 1 Thessalonians, we see this right in the first chapter, right at the very end of 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, we see Paul mentioning the reality of this double vision. In verses 9 and 10, I'll put these on the screen because we're actually going to spend the majority of our time not looking at the letter this morning. We'll come back to that in a second. So 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, we see Paul seeing this. He's talking about the reputation that this church have and what others are saying about this church in Thessalonica. And they tell us, verse 9, they tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Can you see those two actions, those two verbs that these people are living through? They, they, they are serving and waiting. They serve God now, the God who has saved them now, yes, while they wait for his coming. And so they are living with this double vision and I think the Lord would have us do the same. That as we live in the very present here and now, yes, very aware of what's going on in front of us. We don't live with our minds so focused on the future that we're of no, no present reality. We don't have our roots set down in the real world that we live in now. But it's this double vision that we serve the living God in our here and now while we wait for his coming. So that's one of the themes that we see throughout this letter. Indeed, throughout both letters, but particularly the first letter. So what I would like to do is to think now, with that big picture of the letter in front of us, I'd like us to, to go back, in a sense. Go back to the very start of this church. How did this church come to be? What was it that drew them together? And how can we learn from what drew them together in the first place about the themes that we then see throughout this letter? If you do happen to have 1 Thessalonians 1 open, then we are going to, just let me read uh, the first three verses, because we do start to see something of Paul's affection for this church, but then we will turn back to Acts. First Thessalonians opens with this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Paul then says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so right off the bat, we see this church is dear to Paul's heart. and He is always praying for them and praying for the great things that he has seen God do in and through them. But the letter starts with the letter the way most of Paul's letters starts by introducing the senders and the receivers. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy. uh, And that may be a familiar trio for you if you're aware of some of the spread of the early churches recorded for us in Scripture. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were active in spreading the gospel throughout uh, most of what was known as Asia Minor, modern-day Greece and Turkey. And they helped to spread the gospel around that whole area. And indeed, those three individuals were very well known to the church in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas, as we'll see in a minute, were definitely there when the church started. Timothy may well have also been with them at that stage, but if he wasn't even then, then Paul sends Timothy back to the church after him and Silas leave. And it's because of the report that Timothy brings back to Paul that Paul then writes this encouraging letter back to the church. So the church of the Thessalonians know Paul, Silas, and Timothy very well. And they're significant figures, not just in the birth of the church in general, but certainly in the launch of the, the church in Thessalonica, but let's head back to Acts chapter 17, because this is where we see the church in Thessalonica being started, the gospel coming to this great city. And I'd love us to read uh, the first nine and a half verses or so, as we see the gospel coming to this city. Because as I said, when we do that, it helps us to see the foundation for what this, what kind of church this is, what kind of issues are going on in Thessalonica at the time, which will affect the way this church is, is acting and the importance of the teaching that Paul gives them. So let me read Acts 17, uh, the first uh, maybe, yeah, nine maybe and a half verses. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away. To Berea, so Paul and Silas, at least, and others were told. There, Paul and his companions in verse one, they arrive in Thessalonica, and even if you have your Bibles open and you flick back into Acts 16, you'll see that they arrive in Thessalonica from Philippi. Philippi had not been a positive, a pleasant; it had been a positive gospel experience, but it had not been a pleasant, comfortable experience for Paul and Silas. They had been arrested, imprisoned, and then miraculously released from prison. In Philippi, and then they leave Philippi and head to Thessalonica, where again things don't seem to go the way they might have planned. But there's a couple of key things we see from Paul's visit to Thessalonica here. The first thing is actually he doesn't spend a lot of time with this church. We're told in that he in verse two that he went on three Sabbath days, so that's possibly somewhere between two and four weeks he spends in the city before he is then driven out, and so he doesn't have a lot of time, but yet. Even despite the brevity of his stay, he deeply loves this congregation. We see that through the letters, as we'll talk about in the next few weeks. The second thing that we'll notice about this church is that it is broad and it is mixed. So in verse 4, we see some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. This was a mixed bag of a church. Even though Paul is preaching in the synagogue, there are also Jews and Greeks and lots of women who join in this church community. So this is broad. That is a wonderful picture of the unity of the gospel. When people are drawn together by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it draws all people from all tribes and nations. And yet, as we know, as human beings, when you draw people from different backgrounds and different experiences together, you sometimes have difficulty that may come to be, in, as we see through the letters. But the point that we see here is the gospel spreads wide and gathers many from many different backgrounds and cultures. And the third thing we see, that Thessalonica as a city is clearly loyal to Caesar. We notice that from what is what they are accused of when we see that later down in verse 7 and 8. But that's important because Thessalonica was indeed the the Roman capital of this area, of Macedonia. Geographically, it was in a really significant portion of the land. It lay right on the Ignatian Way, which was this amazing Roman road that they built from the Adriatic Sea all the way across Asia Minor. And so it was this massive trade route. And they received lots of benefits by being the Roman capital of this area. And so loyalty to Caesar was good for the city. It had its benefits for many people. And yet, as the gospel comes, that seems to be challenged. I will unpack that a little bit more about the impact that that has. And so there's a few things that we learn. Paul didn't spend long there. The church is broad. And the city as a whole is very Roman in nature, very loyal to Caesar. But what I want to do just for the remainder of our time is to consider how the gospel comes to this city. How the gospel comes and how the church is formed. And we see at least two things about the nature of what happens. We see from these verses in Acts 17, we see the core of the gospel. We see the message that Paul presents to the synagogue and to the people who then turn to Jesus. But we also secondly see the challenge of the gospel. We see the core of the gospel, what it is to believe, what is the content of the gospel, and what it is to turn from idols to the true and living God. But then we see the challenge of the gospel that it is not universally accepted and how it brings difficulty sometimes for people who trust in Jesus Christ. And so let's think firstly about the core of the gospel. Look at how Paul explains the gospel in the synagogue. And we see this in verses two and three. And I realize I'm jumping around a little bit here. I hope you're following along. Acts 17, verses two and three. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And so here we have the core of the gospel message. It is Jesus. It is the Messiah, Jesus. The Messiah was, the, of course, the one the Jews were waiting for. The one who God had promised that he would send to rescue his people from their sin. And Jesus is he. Jesus is the one that they had been waiting for. And in many ways, it is so helpful for us to continually come back to the core of the gospel message. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? That Jesus came to save sinners from their sin. That is the core of the gospel message. It's what we celebrate every week as we gather around this table. That Christ died so that we would know forgiveness from sin. And so when we turn from our sin and when we turn to him in faith, then he welcomes us into his family by his grace and his mercy. It is good news. It is wonderfully good news. It is life-transformingly good news. And it is good to regularly remember the core of the gospel. And as we, as we read in these verses, I find it fascinating that we actually get to see how Paul delivered this message, how he shared it. He knew the core, but how, how did he do that? How did he show what this message was? And in verses two and three, we see four ways in which he does that. He went on three Sabbath days and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So firstly, Paul shows from God's word that Jesus is the Messiah. Secondly, He explains, he proves that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. That was a real stumbling block for the Jews, that the Messiah would come. They were expecting a military ruler, this, this, this empire to be overthrown, so that God's kingdom would come and be established on earth right now. And so the reality that Jesus had died, how could he have been the Messiah if he was dead and buried? But Paul explains and proves that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. God had shown that in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. And so Paul helps to explain and to prove. And then at the end of verse 3, This Jesus I am, fourthly, proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Paul boldly, confidently proclaims. Jesus is the Savior. He reasons, he explains, he proves, he proclaims. That rhymes nicely, if you, if you like. He reasons, he explains, he proves, he proclaims. And so we get this sense that, that, that Paul uses Scripture to show the need for salvation, to show that Jesus is the one who brings that salvation, and then he boldly proclaims that to the people who hear. And what a helpful model that is for us. May we be people who reason, who explain, who who prove and proclaim. Jesus is the savior of the world. That is the core of the gospel message. I'm not saying we have to be experts. We have to be professionals. Some of us are really cowed by by evangelism. I get that. I understand that. We may, as we see later, we may not have a warm reception to that message, but this is the core of the gospel. Jesus is the one who saves people from sin. And we can know that with confidence because scripture is clear. And because Jesus has done all that is needed for people to know forgiveness from sin and life in all its fullness. And so Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. That's the core of the gospel. And the second thing we see in this passage, at least, is the challenge then of the gospel. See, we see the reality that there is a mixed response here. There are some, as we saw in verse 4, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And then verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. So they round up a mob, they rush to Jason's house, they bring them before the city officials. There will be some, as we share the gospel message, there will be some who gladly and sincerely accept that wonderful good news. And there will be others who don't. And that is devastatingly sad. But there, it's because there is a challenge in the gospel. See, the challenge of the gospel is the reality that Jesus is King. That we see that in verse six and seven, as the people bring Jason and the believers before the city officials. And in verse seven, they said they have, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another King, one called Jesus. Jesus is King. And in a city like Thessalonica, where allegiance to Caesar was the way to peace, that was the way to prosperity, to come and claim that there's another king who should be bowed before, that was dangerous. It was a dangerous message. Yet the reality for those who turn to Jesus, we claim him as king. He is Lord of our lives. That's what it means to turn to him. We can't turn to him any other way. We can't turn to him with any less uh, submission than that. Because of who he is and all he's done. And that idea of living with God and with Jesus as our king can be a challenge. All of us love being kings and queens of our own lives. That that is our sinful nature. That is the way we are without him. And so to relinquish and surrender ourselves before him is difficult. It's a journey many of us are on, even as his followers But certainly in that initial stage of responding to his good news, it's hard to say, yeah, okay, Jesus, you have control of my life. But we know from the Bible, and many of us know from experience, living with him as king is good news. That's what Paul talks about here, this this turn, this change, the shift in allegiance it's what he talks about back in Thessalonians in the letter to the first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 9, he says that the reputation this church has was how they turned to God from idols. Oh, sorry. Turned to God from idols. And so they had to they had to make that shift. They turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And I think when we hear this talk of idols, sometimes we think. That that means little figurines that maybe sat on people's mantelpiece. That, that may well have been the case. There may well have been physical idols that people had in their homes. There, there were false gods who had temples that people went to to worship in. And therefore with that idea in our minds, I think we sometimes think that this is archaic. That this is something from antiquity that doesn't take place. Now we don't have idols in our day. But I think when we appreciate that an idol is anything that we are devoted to or dependent on. Gee, then we see that definition broadens out a lot, doesn't it? An idol is something that we give glory to that doesn't deserve it. It's something that we devote ourselves to or become dependent upon for our satisfaction. But that thing can never fulfill that. And therefore, when we think of an idol like that, then we do start to see things, idols in our own hearts, whether it's money or career progression or or social acceptance or educational attainment or relationship status or or fitness goals or physical appearance. There's there's so many things that we devote ourselves to that we've become dependent upon for our true happiness. And the Bible helps us to see the, the folly in that because those things can never satisfy those things can certainly never remove sin. And so the message of 1 Thessalonians 1.9 is that to follow God means turning from those false gods to the true and living God. And spoken into a city where Caesar was held up as the one and true God, this was dangerous, this was challenging, yet all of us need to hear this. The Christians in Thessalonica needed to hear that too. It brought real difficulty for them. Jason and the believers were put through the mill because of their allegiance now away from Rome to Christ. And yet it is good news still. We can be completely devoted to and dependent upon Jesus. He is not an idol because idols are false. He is the true and living God. And the reality is that even though we, we struggle to turn away from our idols, and indeed many of us still do, as I said, God has made the way. He, he knows where where our rule and reign will take us in the end if we keep ourselves on the thrones of our own lives. He knows the destiny that that ends up with us, and it is his wrath, it is his judgment. That is right, and that is good for him to do. It is good that God is a just and holy judge. And so... In his love, he gives Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. And because of what Jesus has done for us, then he came to bear that wrath so that by turning from idols to him, we might know his forgiveness, his righteousness. And therefore, we're not destined for eternal judgment cast out from God's presence. Our home is is now eternal joy in his presence and so as we turn from idols to the true and living God that is our home that is the that is the double vision that we must have it's the message that Paul has consistently for the Thessalonians he had it here in Acts 17 he uh, continues it throughout his letters Jesus is the gospel the good news of God is Jesus Christ. It is salvation from sin. That is the core of the gospel. And that comes with the challenge. Will we surrender our lives to him? Or will we continue to, to seek to live under our own rule and reign? And so that's the core of the gospel and the challenge of the gospel. In Thessalonica, this was good news for them. And it continues to be good news for us. This young church would face opposition right from the start as we see here. And to enable them to persevere through that, and for their faith to thrive in that, Paul encourages them to adopt this double vision. To live life in the present with confidence in the future. To serve and wait. To know that God is the God who saves. Jesus has taken the wrath. He has saved us from the coming wrath. And so as we know our home is in him... Serve him now as we wait. Jesus is coming back. And therefore we can live in the light of his promises. We can live in the the joy of his teaching. We can live, as, as Barry reminded us earlier, empowered by his spirit. Because he longs to give life in all its fullness. And life for all eternity. And so as we seek to live as his followers in the here and now, in 21st century East Belfast, Let's maintain this double vision. Let's see him as the reigning king who is coming. And with the confidence that that brings, let's live a life of service for him with how he directs us in the here and now. And may he help us to do just that for his glory. Let's pray together. Our heavenly father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, father, that you continue to speak to us through your word, that your word is eternal Your word is profitable for us. Your word is good for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us in righteousness so that we would then be equipped for every good work that you have for us. And so we pray as we embark on this journey through 1 Thessalonians, we thank you, Father, for that letter. We thank you for the church in Thessalonica. We thank you for how the gospel came to that city. And we thank you, God, for what you will continue to teach us as we engage in the words that Paul wrote to that, that young church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live with this helpful and biblical double vision. That we would recognize that you have saved us. And you have saved us to do your work here. And we can do that with confidence, inspired and empowered by your spirit. Because we know that you, the great king of all the universe, is coming back. And so would you help us, Father? to grasp both of those realities and therefore live in a way that glorifies you and that we may see many turn to trust in you as their Lord and Savior. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.